Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Saxonburg community approximately 10 years ago and many times I would drive down Knock Road and I would see a sign that said future home of New Life Christian Ministries and for years I had always wondered what was going on at that church. At our old church, uh, our church basically fell apart and my husband stopped attending church and after a few months of me attending church on my own, uh, God spoke to my husband one Sunday morning and says, you need to go to church. So he got up and he found himself at New Life in the school that day. And after attending the church a couple times, he said, I really believe God wants us to attend this church as a family. So Christmas Eve of 2009, we started attending New Life. And it was actually the first church that my teenage daughter said to me that I feel God is speaking to me directly. New Life impacted our family in a profound way. Uh, Five years ago, on November 1st of 2011, our 17-year-old daughter died in a car accident. And the New Life family and our pastors were there to stand alongside us to help us through that funeral process. And Jesus used them as a source of support during the grieving process and still the healing process today. Within two months after Alex's accident, I was asked to be a youth leader. And immediately I knew that this was where God was calling me. I knew that through this ministry, he would use me to pour into the lives of kids. And also I was able to develop relationships with other leaders. They became like my brothers, my little brothers and sisters. Uh, we became a family. And through serving as a youth leader, it's helped me to focus on eternal things and not the pain that I was experiencing. Also the opportunity to be a worship leader. I've developed relationships with amazing people and I just feel like the New Life family, the brothers and sisters in Christ, this is where we want to be. This, these are the people we want to spend time with and this is like our second home. I think New Life can impact thousands of people. It's a place that offers hope in Jesus. It's a place where the word of God and his truth is proclaimed. And as we are being equipped through engaging the message, as we read our Bible and we're in prayer and we're growing in our faith, when we go out into our communities and into our nation, wherever we go, they're gonna see Jesus' light through us. They're gonna wanna know why are we different? 
why is that person hopeful? Why do they have joy when they've experienced so much pain? I really believe New Life's impact is going to be very powerful in the next few years. We're investing in the YES initiative because people need to know the hope and peace that's found only in Jesus. I am Tammy Summers and I'm saying yes. I think I need to be about 30 years younger for that intro. What do y'all think? <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new to New Life, we're really glad you're here. As you can see, we're starting a new series today called Just Say Yes. I, I'm always excited when we start a new series, but I'm extremely excited about this one because I believe this five-week series has the potential to change the climate of Saxonburg and our region uh, for years to come. And uh, I want to say something. If you are new or newer, uh, if you've just been coming for a short period of time or you're just here for the very first time this weekend, um, we are not an insider church. What I mean by that is I don't preach messages that are designed for people that are always coming. Um, and yet this series is somewhat of an insider series. And the reason for that is because the Yes Initiative is what we're going to be talking about. And it's a three-year emphasis to raise our level of generosity and to provide funds for a Christian Nurture and Development or a Discipleship Center, uh, which we're planning to build in the year ahead. So we will be talking about that. But please be assured, if you're here for the first time, the primary goal that we have as a church is always to lift up the name of Jesus to bring glory to him. And we have a very close secondary goal, which is to welcome new people, to make you feel like you belong here from the very first time. In fact, um, we were planning for you to come before, uh, you know, before you got out of bed this morning, we were already planning that you would be here. Uh, we had the coffee on, we had, you know, we had some cookies and stuff, and uh, hopefully a warm smile and a welcome from people. And uh, we designed this church with you in mind. So I want you to understand that. And here at New Life, what we, we always talk about this, the three Bs. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But the first one is belong, that the day you come for the very first time, you belong here. And then we hope over time what you'll see is what we believe. Um, you'll hear what we believe, but we hope you'll see what we believe uh, in our actions. What we believe is that there's a God who created everything that exists. And that God loved us with an infinite love. And so when the first two human beings that he created rebelled against him, what we call sin, um, he didn't crush them. He didn't destroy them. He didn't abandon them. In fact, he actually provided for them. And he provided something ultimately that we call redemption. And so what redemption is, is freeing us from the life of sin and, and, and slavery to that and giving us a new life. And the, the way that he most clearly has demonstrated that freedom and that redemption is through his son Jesus. Jesus came 2,000 years ago as a human being, God in the flesh. He was a little baby. He grew up. He lived a perfect life, the only perfect life any human being has ever lived. And he taught and he preached and he cast out demons and he healed people. And as a result of all that good stuff, for some reason, we killed him. We executed him. He died on the cross and, uh, and he rose from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, he uh, spent 40 more days on the earth after he rose from the dead with his disciples, 
ministering to them, encouraging them, challenging them, and promising them that when he went back to heaven, he would not leave them alone, but he would send them his Holy Spirit. And so uh, what we know is that he sent the Holy Spirit to empower his followers to carry his redemptive plan to the world. That's what we believe, all of those things. And what happened when the Holy Spirit came into those believers is their behavior was radically transformed. And it needed to be. Because when Jesus died, the believers, the first believers, um, what they did was they scattered like sheep without a shepherd and they hid behind locked doors because they were afraid that just like Jesus was crucified, they would be found and crucified too. But after Jesus' Holy Spirit came into them, their lives were transformed to such a degree that they would stand in front of crowds and they would talk, and individuals, and they would talk about Jesus and the new life that he offered. And they would do that until the person they were talking to came to know Jesus or until they got shut up. And when I say that, in the first century, they had some pretty radical ways of shutting Christians up. You know, they would kill them. And they would rather die than... than to deny their beliefs once their behavior was changed by the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we talk about the three B's then, belong, believe, and behave. And we hope that when you come over time that you will know first off that you belong right away, that as you believe what uh, we believe that comes from the Word of God, the Bible, uh, about Jesus and who He is, that you will receive Him as Savior and Lord. And that because of that, your behavior will change. And all of our behaviors will continue to change because the thing is that we need a new life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's really what we're going to talk about through this series, this Just Say Yes series. And right now, let's, let's look at the take-home point. For those of you who are new, the take-home point is the one point we make and we uh, seek to take it home with us, live it out in the power of the Holy Spirit in the week ahead. And so here it is. Now is always the best time to say yes to God. Now is always the best time to say yes to God. Now, the, the funny thing about now is it's a sort of a moving target, isn't it? Like, for instance, if I said, let's all say amen right now, you can't really do that because now is past. I, I just heard a psychologist the other day say that now lasts for three seconds. I don't think it even lasts that long. You see, now, now is gone. But what I, what I mean when I say now is always the best time to say yes to God, you know what I mean. I mean, don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until next week, next month, next year. Right now. Because as G.K. Chesterton said a long, long time ago, most people don't say no to God. They say not yet. And they say it all their lives. So what we're talking about during this Just Say Yes series, first and foremost, is saying yes to having Jesus Christ be our Savior and Lord. And the thing you need to know is when you say yes to him for the first time, that's only the first time. There will be many, many more times, thousands if you live long enough, of times where God gives you the opportunity to say yes to him. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So right now what we're going to do is we're going to turn to uh, the second letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth and the fifth chapter, and we're going to talk about what it means to have a new life in Jesus Christ. And the thing we need to know about the Corinthian believers is the city of Corinth was a very immoral city. In fact, if you lived back in that day, if you were a really evil person, they would say you live like a Corinthian. That's what Corinth was like. And so when Paul went there to bring the message of Jesus Christ to that community, to that city, um, he didn't go to a group of people that were open to the message. They're, they weren't Jewish by background. They, they, didn't, they had never heard of Jesus. They were abject pagans. And so in the midst of that, Paul came in 
and ask them to say yes to something that was radically new and radically different in their lives. So we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 17 and following. If you have your Bible, your Bible app, you want to turn there now. And if you don't, it'll be up on the screen. But before we begin, let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the God of the universe, the God who loves us, the God who gave yourself for us in the man Jesus Christ, who is more for us than we are for ourselves. And today I pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit into us, that we might receive your message, that we might hear it and understand it and live it out in the week ahead, that we might say yes to you every opportunity we get. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul writes these words. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Now, the amazing thing is, the Corinthians were as far from God as any people could be. And yet, yet Paul said, anyone, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life is finished. The new life has come. And, and it's interesting because that's exactly the same thing that Jesus said to a man who was a very good man, a, a man who was a very religious man who followed the ways of God according to the Old Testament law of Moses, a man named Nicodemus. He said the same thing with different words. Here's what he said in John chapter 3, verse 3. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So when we talk about now being the best time to say yes to God, what we're saying is in the moment when we are born again, we say yes to God, we're born again, we become a new creation. And in that moment, everything changes radically. Everything is different. In fact, as Paul said, the old is gone and a new life has begun. No matter how we feel or even if we don't feel anything, in that moment when we make that commitment, we are new people. Even if we don't have any sense of anything being different, on the inside, everything is different. We have a new life, a whole new life. And it's interesting to me that the Colossians, if you had a scale here of bad people that way, good people that way, the Colossians, I mean, Corinthians were about as far on this end of the scale as you could get, as bad as you could get. And Nicodemus would probably be over here as good as you can get. And yet, the solution for both of them was a new life. Both the good and the bad need a new life. How, how, why is that? Well, well, the answer comes to this question, when we ask this question, how good is good enough? The answer is perfect. Good people don't go to hell. Bad people do. There aren't any good people. That's the problem. Even Nicodemus, because Jesus said you have to be born again or you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So for all of us, no matter where we think we are on this spectrum, at that end or that end, we all need a new life. We all need to be a new creation. Paul told us uh, through the Colossian church that we were all once enemies of God. And we don't have to be, but that's how we start out our life. Because of what Adam and Eve did, they started this snowball of sin that has gone down through the generations. And so all of us need to be redeemed. Now, Paul continues with what I consider to be the best news ever. Here's what he says. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. New life that God gives us is a gift. We don't have to do anything. There's not 10 steps or 20 steps or three steps to becoming uh, new, 
to being born again. It's just a process of saying yes. All we have to do is say yes to Jesus as Lord, which means owner, and yes to Jesus as Savior, which means he saves us from sin and death. It's a gift. And I've had people say to me, well, Pastor Chris, I can't believe it. I, I don't buy it. Everybody knows there's no free lunch. Everybody knows there has to be some strings attached. No, there, there are no strings attached. But the thing is, once we have received, receiving the new life in Jesus Christ is a gift, and living the new life in Jesus Christ is an expe expectation. Let me explain it this way. Once I receive the new gift in Jesus Christ, this new life that this is, a, is a gift that I can't purchase, there's this sense in which God calls us to become more than we are. In the moment we're born again, we're babies, we're spiritual babies, and he calls us to grow up. And that process of growing up is a process of doing good works. In fact, we were created for good works. We're told that in Ephesians 2, verse 10. But we don't do the good works so that God will love us. We do the good works because we already know that God loves us. You can't do anything for God to love you more than he already does. I want to use a little illustration. For those of you who have ever had a baby... You'll, you'll, you'll relate with this, all right? So when your baby's a baby, you put the baby in the crib or the bed, whatever, and, and, and you probably, if you were anything like me, at times you would go in and check on the baby. And, and when you would check on the baby, the baby would be sleeping, and, and, and you would look in at the baby, and you go, oh, I love her so much. And she wasn't doing anything. <laughs> she was just sleeping. And that's how it was this morning before you woke up. Before you woke up this morning, while you were lying there in bed, God was looking at you, and he was saying, ah, I love her so much. I love him so much. That's my baby. So God loves us. It's a gift. But then once we are, once we are new people, once we receive this salvation, this gift that God gives us, this new life that God gives us, he does expect us to grow up. He doesn't expect us to lie there in our beds for the rest of our lives, but he expects us to grow up and do the things that he created us to do. He expects us to grow up after we're born again and to live as redeemed children. So we've been redeemed from sin, so we get, get to, don't have to, get to live differently. Now, Paul told the Corinthian believers, as he continued, and God has given us this task of re reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So in the moment when we say yes to God, we get a new, new job, a new task, and that is to reconcile people to God. What does reconcile mean? It brings, means bringing two parties together who differ. And in the case of God and us, God differs with us because we're sinners, and we differ with God because we sin and because we sometimes don't even acknowledge his existence. So there needs to be reconciliation, and we get to, in the moment of our reconciliation, we get to start reconciling others. We don't have to be a Christian for five years or ten years or twenty years before we can do it. In fact, all we need to know is that this new life is a gift that God gives freely, and we can offer the gift to somebody else once we've received it. Now, I have a question, and it has to do with the yes initiative. So this is sort of an insider thing, but I hope all of you will listen. The question is a very simple one. What does building another building have to do with reconciling people to Jesus? What does building a children's nurture and discipleship center have to do with having people who differ with God come together with God? L let me ask you a prior question. What does this building have to do with it, with reconciliation? 
Well, every weekend on Saturday night and Sunday mornings, we have worship gatherings. And what we do at these worship gatherings is we worship God. We praise God. And we tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. And as we do that, people are reconciled to him. In fact, what we've discovered is every single week, whether it's here in worship or whether it's on Sunday night at the high school group or Tuesday night at the middle school group or Thursday night at the Celebrate Recovery group where people who are are struggling with hurts, habits, and hang-ups come to find the reconciling love of Jesus Christ, that people are reconciled to him in all of those venues, but they all take place here. And people are prayed for and people are, we plan ministry and we provide for the needs of others and all that takes place here. Because let me tell you what buildings are. Nothing more, nothing less. Buildings are tools. When I was a carpenter, I used a hammer. I used screwdrivers, stuff like that. I used words as a, as a pastor. But, but the tool that we use here, this is a tool. It's, and it's not the prettiest tool or the most ornate tool. It's a practical one, though. It's a practical tool. Let me tell you how practical it is. In the three years since we've opened up this building, 300 people, almost 400 now, more people per week come here to worship than did when we had no building. The tool wasn't here and we couldn't use it, so people came to the school, obviously. People got saved at the school, but now that we have the building, hundreds more and dozens and dozens of young people who weren't coming to New Life are now coming to New Life and they're hearing the gospel presented. And we have children crammed into the building at various times and places. And so we need to add the next building so we can do more reconciling work in this community and this region. And we've never had a problem filling buildings up. We've only had a problem that the buildings we have are too full. Now, you know that that's not a problem in every church in America. I just read a book this week. It's called Who Moved My Pulpit? And it's a book about creating change in the church and, and dealing with change in the church. And you might notice if you know what a pulpit is, we don't have one. In fact, I was just thinking the other day, maybe it'd be cool to have like one of those invisible, I mean, you know, glass ones that you can sort of see through. Then I thought, well, what, what would we do with it? Because we don't really use them, right? But, but the point is that most churches in America need to do something different. You know why? Because 90% of churches in America are declining or else they are not keeping up with the rate of growth of their community. In other words, if the community is growing at 5%, they're growing at 1% or 2%. And so they're not even keeping up with the rate of growth of their community. And the thing is, here at New Life, we, in the greater Saxonburg metropolitan area, the rate of growth is 2 to 3% per year. And this year, this year, the rate of growth so far year to date at New Life is 24.53%. Okay, yeah. Now, if we were in Dallas, Texas, that wouldn't be a big thing. Well, it would still be a pretty big thing even in Dallas, Texas, or if we were in Costa Mesa, California. You know, churches grow by double digits there. But my good friend John Nuzo from Victory Family Church, whenever we get together, and when I share this statistic, because I haven't shared this statistic with him yet, because we've never, we've never reached the 20% per year thing. It's always been like 10, 12, 14, that kind of thing, which it would be most churches in the world would be happy for that. But... 24%, he, he, you know what he always says? Well, you know what? You can't do that, Chris. That has to be a miracle. <laughs> yes, it has to be a miracle, and I know that. And I think you all know that too. And, and I share that simply to say that we get to do something that most of the churches in the United States are never gonna get to do. We already got to build one building. We're gonna get to build another building as part of this Yes Initiative. So let's move on uh, to what something, oh, it's something that I used to hear. 
I don't hear it very much anymore, but I used to have people come to me, you know, as New Life was growing, even when we were in the school, and they would say, you know, Pastor Chris, I hope we never get to be a big church because I don't like big churches. And whenever they would say that, this is how I would respond. I would say, well, our goal isn't to become a big church. Our goal is to be a faithful church. Our goal is to continue to share, grow, and live the new life of Jesus Christ with the world one person at a time. And we want to do that in truth and love. And in our experience, when we do that in truth and love, the church grows. And so I want you to see this on the screen because it's so important. Our goal has never been to be a big church, only to be a faithful, healthy, growing family of Jesus Christ where all are welcome to belong, believe, and behave more and more like Jesus. So did you notice when Paul was talking about God reconciling the five people to himself, the 15, the 50, the 100, whatever size church you like? No, it's the world. And when God wants to reconcile the world to himself, that means there are going to be some big churches. In fact, the day the church began on the day of Pentecost, you know, 2,000 years ago, the church went from 120 to 3,120 the first day. It was a mega church the first day. And so here at New Life, we don't apologize for getting bigger as long as we're doing truth and love. You know, when you put truth and love together, do you know what that is? It's messy. It's easy to be just truthful. I could just stand up here and tell you all how you're all going to go to hell and everything. And it would be true if you don't know Jesus. That's easy. I could stand up here and just say, oh, we just all love each other. Let's have some hugs, right? Let's group hug, right? And that's easy. But putting the truth and love together, that's hard. It's messy. But when we do that in the name of Jesus Christ, in the new life of Jesus Christ, what happens is what's happening is, is the church grows and moves forward. So look at what Paul said next. He said, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. I don't know about you, but when I read those words, we are ambassadors for Christ, I go, yes, because I always wanted to be some kind of famous ambassador. Not really, I want to be president. Well, you know, heck, I bet you most people would vote for me these days. Okay, let's not go there. All right, so uh, it's not a hard thing to get somebody to vote for you these days. All right, so I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You know what that means? I get to represent the will of God and the kingdom of God to the United States of America and to as many countries as are out there that we can reach. And we get to do that. The reason I stand up here week after week, the reason I go to Cuba and Cambodia, it's not because I just like doing it. I do it because I know that once I was saved, once I was born again, once I received this new life, God called me to be an ambassador for him. And I've invested my entire adult life for that. And, and, and you know, if you've said yes to Jesus, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. It, it isn't you could be, you might be, you have to sign up and take some courses. No, you are. We are. And, and the only question is, are we going to be good ambassadors or bad ambassadors? Are we going to be effective or in, ineffective? But we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And notice what it says. It says, we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. I love to plead with people to come back to God. You know why? Because whenever I found out that I was a sinner at the age of five, I was a quick learner when it came to sin, I realized I needed a new life. And once I actually took seven years for me to, I wasn't that quick of a learner, but seven years later when I actually trusted Jesus as my Savior and Lord and I was born again, and I said, everybody needs this. And so all my life I've been telling people, you know who you need? Jesus. 
You know, you know people would say, I don't, I don't like the church. Well, I don't like most churches either. But it's not about that. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And, 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 and so, you know, some people think that what people need is to be beat over the head with the Bible. I think most people need a hug, frankly. But the truth wrapped around it, right? We need to know that this God loves us. And, and the thing I always say is people don't need the good news until they, ha- they know the bad news. We know the bad news, but we don't really say it clearly. What we don't say clearly and lovingly is this. Look, we're all messed up. We're all broken. We, we all don't have the spots, all the spots on our dominoes. You know, we all need help. And all of us are in that condition. Not just, not just the, you know, not just the Corinthians. We're all in that boat. And, and the reality is, once we find out that there's somebody, not just somebody, but the God of the universe who loves us and who died for us, who rose again and prays for us, once we find that out, it's amazing. I always say you can't really, you can't fully understand the good news until you understand the bad news, the situation and predicament we were in and continue to be in without Jesus Christ in our lives. So look how Paul sums up what happens in that now moment when we trust Jesus. He says this, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering of for sin so that we could make, be made right with God through Christ. One of the older English translations in which I learned this verse says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know if you realize, if you've ever heard the account of Jesus' crucifixion, that dying on the cross, as painful as it was for Jesus, that wasn't nearly the most painful thing about being crucified. It wasn't the physical thing that was the most painful thing for Jesus. The most painful thing for Jesus was that moment when the sin of the entire world, past, present, and future, came upon him and he was separated from his heavenly Father for the first and only time in all eternity. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, hardly anybody would ever be willing to be crucified for somebody they didn't even know for a bad person that's down at that end of the list, that end of the line. But Jesus did that because he knew it was the only way we could be born again, the only way we could have a new life that would be truly life, that would last forever. And so it's so incredible. That truth is so incredible. That's why I've invested my life in it, and that's why I'm going to continue to invest it for the rest of my life because I know that everybody is better off who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So Paul reminds us once again who we are in Jesus Christ and what he calls us to do. It says, as God's partners, it's a new word, not ambassadors this time, partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. So we're God's partners and we must never ignore God's marvelous grace in our lives. Think about it. From the moment that you and I receive this new life, everything's different. Our destiny is different. It doesn't matter what we were. It doesn't matter. You know, we were headed to hell. That's a fact. And we look around the world today and we see people that just don't understand that there's a God who loves them. And the truth of the matter is, until we know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we're just physical beings. I mean, we are spiritual beings that are having a physical experience, but we don't recognize the spiritual part. So we just think the physical is all there is. And there's a lot that's good in the physical. Do you realize most religions in the world are not religions that focus on the physical? In fact, most religions in the world say that the physical is bad. 
not Christianity. Jesus didn't come to get rid of the physical. He came to help us understand that there is good in us, in, in us, but that good comes from him being inside of us, and it transforms everything from the inside out. This past week, this past you know, Tuesday to Friday, five of us from the church staff went to Louisville. No, not Louisville. Where did we go? Nashville. Nashville. Doesn't matter. One of them southern places. Okay. Nashville. And we went there for a conference, but one of the goals that we had while we were there was to find out who had the best barbecue. So we went to Puckett's. Puckett's does not have the best barbecue. I can just tell you that. It was dry. It wasn't that good. Uh, then we went to Martin's. Mm, they have pretty good. It's a little spicy. If you like spicy, you probably would like it. Okay, what's my point? My point is food is good. And uh, actually, the best barbecue I had during the trip was at uh, City Barbecue in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and, and, and so... Food is good. It's a good thing. There's a lot of good physical things. But here's what happens. It's what always happens when human beings get involved is we take good things and we use them for bad things. This morning, I woke up this morning real early, like 3.30. I couldn't go back to bed, so I got some stuff done. And then for some reason, I turned on, well, actually, Nancy had the weather on, and I watched the news. The next story in the news was about heroin overdoses. Ten heroin overdoses a day in Pennsylvania. I mean, death-causing heroin overdoses. There's hundreds of heroin overdoses. But 10 people die every day of heroin overdoses in Pennsylvania. There are 1,000 people who die every day of drug overdoses in the United States of America. You know why that is, right? Because physical things taken to an extreme are usually bad. Good things can be used for good purposes, but they can become bad over time. And morphine and heroin are basically the same thing. And I tell you, after I had my appendix out, I'm glad I had some morphine. But heroin is a bad thing. And it kills people. Because sin feels good until it doesn't. And what Paul is telling us is that when we become these new people, we get to be partners with God. In the process, we get to be partners with him. And we can't ignore that process because there are too many hurting people in the world. There are too many people that are hopeless. There are too many people that feel like they don't matter. That, you know, and, and the weirdest thing about this culture in which we live today, well, I don't know, I could go on for about 17 sermons about that. But one of the weirdest things about the culture in which we live today is there are basically two groups of people, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, two groups of people. One group of people says, we don't matter. We're all just chemicals, you know, and neurons and stuff, and, and we all are accidents anyway. When we die, we're dead. doesn't matter. But then there's this other group that says, well, you realize we're all basically good people. We just need a little tweak here and there, a little medication, and we'll be okay. But neither of those are true. What's true is we're messed up. We're broken. And we can't fix ourselves and we can't be fixed apart from Jesus Christ coming in and taking over. One of the aspects of the, the yes initiative is a physical thing, a material thing. And I, I want to talk about it a little bit right now. It's called money, financial giving. And if you're new to the church, you're thinking, oh, here it comes. I know every church, all they talk about is money. Well, let me tell you something. A good church will talk about money. You know why? Because Jesus talked about money about a third of the time. And the reason he did is because Jesus knew that the chief rival God in our lives, it's money. Here's what he said in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We've all been entrusted with different amounts of money. Some of us have a little bit. Some of us have a lot. 
And the interesting thing is the devil doesn't matter how much money we have. The devil wants to guide us to a false idea. He wants to deceive us into believing that money can be our security. That if we just had a little bit more money, we'd be okay. And and do you know that a little bit more is a moving target? Because if you make $50,000 a year, you think if you had $20,000 more a year and you were making $70,000 a year, you'd be secure. But if you're making $100,000 a year, you think you need $50,000 more a year so that you can be secure. And if you make $200,000 a year, you think you need $75,000 to $100,000 more a year to be secure. Because money is never going to make us secure. But the devil gets us on that treadmill and so we get, we get out of focus from saying yes to God. And it's interesting that Jesus said this. At the end of that statement, after the Matthew 6, 24, you go all the way down to verse 6, 33. Jesus said this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything you need will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything you need will be added to you. So in other words, if we seek God first in our lives, then the stuff we need will be provided by him. If we seek the stuff we need first in our lives, then it's up to us to figure it out. All of my adult life, I have believed this one truth. Matthew 6, 33. I have believed that God will provide what I need as long as I put him first. And I've never found that to be false in my entire life. In fact, there was a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. He was a sort of a critic of the church. And one of the things he said about this, seek first the kingdom, he said, if we don't seek first the kingdom of God, we won't seek the kingdom of God. I've seen that in people's lives. I've seen it in my own life. If I get distracted from putting God first in my life, then God just goes off, off the radar. You know, if you don't put God first, if I don't put God first, he's not gonna be second. He's just gonna be out, out of the picture. And that's why when we wake up in the morning, the first thing we need to do is make sure that God is first. And, and once he's first, then we will be able to see these other things come into alignment in our life. So today's scripture reminds us that as new people in Jesus Christ, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, as partners in this redeeming work that God has given us, there's an urgency that most of us don't feel. There's an urgency to this now moment. And, and here's how Paul talks about it. He says, for God says... Not me, God. For God says, at just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. It's very interesting. If you know a little bit of background, the Jews believed that there was a day of salvation. It was a day when the Messiah or God's deliverer was going to come and was going to redeem everything. And the Israelites were going to be back in the center of everything and they were going to be sort of the pinnacle of the universe. But Paul wasn't writing to Jews. He was writing to Gentiles. He was writing to these people that were at the bad end of the spectrum, right? And what he's saying is, now is the day of salvation. Today, it matters what we do today, because you know what? There's only two days in the, in, in the, in the year. I just heard this quote this week. It's a powerful quote. Two days in a year when you can't do anything. Yesterday and tomorrow. Only two days in a year you can't do anything. Yesterday and tomorrow. What does that mean? It means the only day you can do something is today. So today is the day of salvation because Jesus might not come back today. He might. He might not come back tomorrow or next week or next month, but here's the thing. He is coming back, and he's going to claim his own. Those who have said yes to him, he's going to say yes to them forever. So today is the day 
to say yes. If you haven't said yes, or look about this. What if you did? If you've already said yes to him, then are you living as if you have? Am I? Are we waking up and saying today is the day I'm going to live as if Jesus is coming back today because he might be. I'm going to live as if the Holy Spirit is in charge of my life because he is. I'm going to live by saying yes to the things of God and no to the things that aren't because next week, I'm so excited about this series. I already got next week's sermons written and the next week's almost half done. All right? Because next week it's going to be called the cost of saying yes because there is a cost to say yes to God. And then the next week we're going to be talking about the cost of saying no to God because you realize there's an even bigger cost to saying no. And every time we say no, we say yes to something. If we say no to, you know, I'm not going to go there again about green smoothies. Okay, we say no to one thing, we say yes to something else. We say yes to one thing, we say no to something else. And so the matter that's before us today, the urgent matter and the important matter, do you know what something is that's both urgent and important? It's something we got to do. And the urgent and important matter of our lives is saying yes to God today, right now. So if you've never done that, if you've never said yes to God in Jesus Christ before, if you've never asked him to be your Lord, your owner, never said yes to him being your Savior, meaning he saved you from sin and death, then I'm going to ask you to do that right now. And, and we're going to actually take a moment to pray for anybody who's never done that before, and actually for all of us who have, that we'll continue to say yes. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone in the room and in this building that can hear me and anybody that's going to listen on the, on the website to this message, who doesn't know Jesus, Savior and Lord, that, that that person will say yes right now. And that in their life, they will experience this new life. And it might not feel any different for a moment or, or for a week or a day, or for, for a year. I don't know how long it will, won't feel any different. But the difference is eternal, and we know that. So God, I pray that people will say yes to you, that they will understand that the brokenness of our lives <coughs> can never be fixed by human means, but only by you. And God, I pray right now that anyone who doesn't know you will, will come to know you. Anyone who has never said yes will say yes. And God, for all of us who have said yes, and maybe we've strayed off the path, maybe we've been saying no more than we've been saying yes to you, that God, we will seek you first with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our mind and strength, that we'll put you first because then we know that you will provide for our needs. And I pray that we will live in such a way that people will see you in us even if they don't believe you exist. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, today's commitment is, I will say yes to God in every area of my life this week. I will say yes to God in every area of my life this week. You realize that the gift of salvation that costs us nothing costs Jesus everything. In order for Jesus to reconcile the world to himself, he had to take the sin of the world upon himself. And so salvation is free to us. But it cost Jesus more than we can ever imagine because he was perfect and he took on our sin. He was sinless and he became sin for us. So as we go out there this week, what we are called to do by the, re by the reality that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ and that we are partners with God is to say yes to him. If that means speaking a word of truth and love to somebody, if it means giving somebody a hug or somebody a challenge, whatever it is, that we'll be ready and that we'll say yes to him. Let's pray once more. Almighty God, I thank you again that you love us before we wake up every day. 
that you love us when we go to bed at night and all the times in between, that you love us regardless of what we do. And God, you have given us the solution to our sin, to death, to all that is not of you in our lives. And I pray today, God, I pray today that anyone in this room who feels less than, not enough, not good enough, broken, hurting, that you will, in this moment, fill us all, especially them, with your Holy Spirit. And that we will be able to know your love, your goodness, your power, in a way we never have before. And I pray for all of us, God, that you would pour out your Spirit so that we can say yes to you in every way that matters in the days and weeks ahead until we see you face to face. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.